Hey listeners, I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, and you're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast on a Tuesday. Pastor Ross Anderson joins me for today's topic. And remember, you can find resources to have this conversation with your family, small group, or mentor. Find it all at PursueGod.org. Okay, Ross, today's topic is titled Six Bible Passages on Homosexuality that Every Christian Should Study and Pray About. So before we even jump into these six passages, three from the Old Testament, three from the New Testament, Ross, let's talk to our listeners for a second, because I think, first of all, we want to talk to Christians who are being influenced by a culture that is more and more telling us that to take a biblical, traditional biblical stance against homosexual practices is mean, it's hateful, um, it's bigoted. And so I think, first of all, we have to address the people who are listening, coming to this topic, probably a little bit confused. Yeah. I think you've got a lot of uh, people who really want to follow Jesus and really want to have a Christian identity but we live in a culture where um, this has become normalized, and so you're, maybe you're wondering, you have questions. Maybe you grew up with people who are uh, homosexual, and all of us really probably know somebody. Like my brother was homosexual, and um, and he's passed away now, but you know that was a reality. And so I would want to go like, oh, I have compassion for that person. I know that person. They're not like a deep, depraved individual, and... And so we want to try to find ways to make our theology fit our experience mm-hmm. with with people and with culture. But really, we today we want to talk about how really we have to, as Christians, as Christ followers, we really have to follow what the Bible says. And and you know, this is what explains. This is not driven by bigotry. It's not driven by you know some kind of desire to be in control of other people's lives. It's just driven by, this is what God says about it, and so we want to be faithful to that and, and give that its due in our lives. Yeah, I think it's important for every believer to really wrestle with this. Do, do you come to God's Word, and I think there's a temptation for all of us to do this, do you come to God's Word to prove something that you want to be true, or do you come to God's Word to say, Lord, I want you to speak to me and tell me what's right and what's true, and hopefully it's the latter. Hopefully you... You come to scripture and you say, I'm, I'm the teacher, or I'm the learner, you're the teacher, God, not I'm the teacher, God, and you need to learn from me. And I'm, I'm going to kind of twist this to say what I want it to say. So I think, that's, I think that's the first thing we probably need to acknowledge is, is that so many Christians, quote unquote Christians today, Ross, r- really are coming to the word with the wrong heart in the wrong attitude. And our our goal today is just to look at these six passages that really you should wrestle with, you should know, you should have, you should be aware of, you should know how to talk about these things, first of all, for yourself. Um, but secondly, then, if you are going to be interacting with people in this, in this, you know, arena who, who are living this lifestyle and don't, maybe don't have anyone that's, that is speaking the truth to them. There's another audience too that's related to that, and that is like someone who uh, maybe is just really struggling with trying to figure out, you know, what is what is this thing about God trying to be so restrictive and so limited, and really trying to trying to sit to sort out for themselves. Well, where does this coming from? You know, and not just um, the person who's maybe living in the dual 
realities of, of faith and culture, but the person who really wants to sort it out and, and wants to know, you know, what is the, the truth about this? And we want to we point to those places where God has spoken about it. All right, so let's do it. Here's the first passage. It comes from Genesis chapter 19, verses 5 to 7. So this is the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament. And it says, They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged. Don't do such a wicked thing. So this is really, uh, this is kind of a seminal verse because this is in Sodom. And of course, there's a term that we use today, all these years later, sodomy, and those two are connected. So this is really probably the most famous occurrence, and it might even be the first of, of homosexual behavior in the Bible. You have these men of the city who gathered around um, Lot had guests. Now, these guests, interestingly enough, are are angels from God. They've come to tell uh, Lot, who's living in this wicked city, to tell him that God's going to destroy Sodom and to move, you know, get your family out and so forth. And they, they show up in the form of humans, and the men of the city say, "Hey, here's our chance. We're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna take advantage of these foreign these strangers." And so they surrounded the, the surrounded the house of Lot and, and demanded to have uh, sexual relations with these guests. Now, now Lot's response he identifies this as a wicked thing. He says, "Don't do such a wicked thing." And now, now he had a he had a wicked alternative in the next verse. He says, "Look, don't take these men. I'll I'll give you my daughters." And that's that's no less wicked. That's not justified at all. But the angels, the the men uh, that that came to visit Lot, again, they came to tell him about God's judgment on the city. So they intervened. They stopped the crowd, the blinding light, and so forth. Now this is a little bit open to interpretation because it, there's other people, there's other there's groups that want to legitimize um, homosexuality that say, okay, well, the sin of it was the sin of the city wasn't homosexual relations. It was a rape, a gang rape. It was like there was violence involved, and that that truly there would have been violence involved. But but that's not the heart of the issue. And then um, others say, well, the sin of of Sodom was not so much the homosexuality, but it was other things instead. And that comes out in um, in Ezekiel chapter sixteen, where people will quote that. Where, where God is speaking to Israel using Sodom and their sin as an example of what could happen to Israel if they did not uh, were not obedient to God. Yeah, that verse says Ezekiel sixteen forty nine and fifty Sodom's sin Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out, as you have seen. So again, some. Some people who come to this issue with scripture, they will use that passage, they'll use the gang rape argument, and they'll say, it's, this really isn't about, the, de- the detestable thing isn't about homosexual acts, the detestable thing is gang rape and this other mm-hmm. stuff. And I would say, Ross, to that, I mean, off the top of my head, I would say, if this was the only passage in scripture that talked about this, right. that argument might carry some weight, right. but it's not. Let me just, before we go look at those, uh, comment that, you know, homosexuality is clearly not the only sin of Sodom. 
It's not an either-or kind of thing. Oh, they were sinning in this way, but not in that way. No, they're sinning in all these different ways. And Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom in particular, becomes a token in the Old Testament. It becomes a, a vivid example that God comes back to again and again. The Scripture re- comes back to not, not about homosexuality per se, but about all of their, their sinful attitude toward God and their sinful rebellion, and, and, and we see here pride, arrogance, and so forth, but that includes the sin of homosexuality. You can't exclude that one sin from the whole culture that Sodom represented. Yeah, and we'll see that even in our New Testament verses, that, that again, it's not like God is just calling out homosexuality as this horrible sin unto itself. It, throughout Scripture, homosexuality is listed as a sin, but among other sins. I think that's good for every listener to pay attention to. We can't pick and choose what we want to call right and wrong, and we'll get to that as we continue on. All right, next one is from Leviticus. So this is, again, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, 22, it says, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. Ross, this one seems pretty obvious. Well, and in the context, too, the, the, the book of Leviticus here is delineating laws and punishments of the Israelite nation under God. This, this, is, this is like their constitution um, of, the, of the nation as a whole. And when you get to chapter 16, it's listing primarily forbidden sexual practices. And honestly, many of those apply in American culture today, not just homosexuality, because, because he talks about bestiality, he talks about incest, adultery. But he includes here in verse 22 the idea of, of individuals having same, the same sex with someone of the same gender. He calls it a detestable sin. Now, that word detestable, that's, I want to dig in on that just a little bit because it, it has a negative connotation, of course. The, the word means something that's an abomination or something that's a very undesirable thing. It arouses intense dislike, the, the sin itself, in, in the eyes of God. But to put that into context, there's a Proverbs chapter 16, uh, chapter 6 rather, verses 16 through 19, it says there's seven things that God detests. And it's the same word in Hebrew. The word is toeva. So he talks about haughty eyes, a lying, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness, one who sows discord in a family. Now those seem to be, a, you know, there's like a whole spectrum of detestability there, but they said they're all things that God detests. And that's the word that's being used here that says to have sex with another man is a detestable sin. Now, Ross, it's important to note that Scripture is not saying that people are detestable, but but that the homosexual act is detect, detestable. I think it's that's really valuable to talk about for for our Christian listeners, especially the ones who are gonna, are like, yeah, you tell them, you know, the the people who are going to really go on a tirade against homosexuals. That's really not the heart here. It's to call out sin. It's it's not to be hateful toward the sinner. Yeah, so just, in fact, just last week, I had a woman from our church call me and said, I, I'm confused about something. I need you to come over and, and help me understand this. So I went and visited her, and she has, across the street, there lived a lesbian couple. And uh, one of them was, was tragically killed in an accident. She went to their funeral, and the, um, and the, the, other, the lesbian partner who was left behind 
acknowledged her and said, this is our neighbor, Connie. She, she understands things differently than we do, but she's been a wonderful neighbor. Well, she, can't, she called me because she's getting pressure from within her family. She has actually a couple of homosexual guys living next door, and she's helped them in different ways. They've helped her. But her son, who lives with her, he says, he says, Mom, you should have nothing to do with those people. They're horrible people. They're just awful people. You, you, don't, you don't know what they do. You should have zero, nothing whatsoever to do with them. He was treating her neighbors as if they themselves were detestable people. Now, their behavior doesn't meet the mark by a long shot, but God loves them and God desires them to turn from their, their sin, just like all of us. God, God wants to provide redemption for all of us for our, for our detestable ways of living, no matter what they are. And I thought that was a good example, and I was able to tell her, in fact, I was able to share with her some of the verses that we're looking at today to say, to say look, yeah, this is sin, but it's no worse than your sin or my sin. Um, it has to be dealt with, but we don't want to, you know, she says, okay, I don't want to just condone it, but I want to treat my neighbors with compassion. Well, and I think it's good to also point out that for a non-believer, for someone who is not a Christian, we don't expect them to live according to the Bible. We're not calling people to live according to biblical standards if they haven't trusted Jesus for salvation, because they're gonna, they'll die in their sins apart from Jesus. So the issue really with any sin, right, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual sin, the issue is you interact with them, you love them, you invite them to know the God of the Bible. And if God gets a hold of their hearts, then you can begin to talk about some of the right. some of the ways that he wants us to live. So we trust Jesus first and then we honor God. So for a Christian listening to this to get someone who's not a believer to honor God before they've even trusted Jesus is impossible. Right. You can't please God without faith. And I think that's important for us to understand. I think it's a different conversation when you're talking to someone who claims to be a mm -hmm. Christian who is living a homosexual lifestyle versus talking to someone who is not a believer at all who's living a homosexual lifestyle. Yeah, that's a great distinction that it really makes a lot of sense. The, here's the other thing with before we move on to our next Old Testament passage. Some people would say, "Look, there are a lot, lot of Old Testament laws we don't obey anymore. So why, why does homosexuality make the list?" Yeah, that's a great question, and it really does bear to the question of how do we make sense out of the Old Testament and these laws that were given to the nation of Israel. And I, I think just a quick aside on that. There's really three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There's three three categories of Old Testament laws that are in the book of Leviticus and all the in these other Deuteronomy and so forth. There's what's called the civil law. That's the laws that marked Israel as a unique nation. That's this is how their citizenship was lived out. There was laws about look when you if you live here, don't move a boundary stone. Um, you know, to, to cheat your neighbor and so forth. Well, we would say, don't cheat your neighbor, but we wouldn't say, well, it doesn't matter where your stones are in your yard. So we're not part of the nation of Israel. We're not governed by the, the law. We're governed by the laws of the nation that we live in. So some of the laws, then they don't apply to us anymore because they were, they were national laws. They were kind of the criminal code of that day. The second kind of laws that are in the Old Testament are... Uh, what's called the ceremonial laws, and those are the laws that dictated the sacrifice of animals and the temple worship and all the ways that people worshiped God in that, 
and and the ways that they dealt with sin and all the rituals that they that they did in the the priests and the temple and so forth. That we don't follow those today because those were all fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. All those laws of the sacrifices and the temple looked forward to him and Jesus. They were all temporary, waiting for this final sacrifice to be made, and so they no longer apply to us as Christians. We have. We followed those laws when we put our trust in Jesus and, and, and what he finally did for us. And the third category of law in the Old Testament law sections are laws that express the moral principles reflecting God's holiness and reflecting God's concern for human benefit. So those are they're not necessarily related to the nation, the law code of the nation. They're not related to the sacrifices that were fulfilled in Jesus but they're just an expression of God's character and God's holiness. And so those are still applicable today. And in fact, those are all basically restated in another form in the New Testament. You know, that, So it's a double way that we know what's applicable. It's restated in the New Testament under Jesus, and it also reflects the, the character and the moral holiness of, of the nature of God that in a way that's timeless. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, just summarize that for people who who need to hear that again. I think this language is helpful for people, for those Christians who are trying to, you know, lovingly help other people to understand some of these Old Testament passages. So the three types of laws are civil, ceremonial, and moral. And civil and ceremonial, the first two types were really for the Old Testament, for the for the Jewish believers. But the moral laws are the ones that we really have to pay attention to. They're restated in the New Testament as we're about to see. So that's really helpful. Thanks, Ross. One one more passage in the Old Testament before we move on to three in the New Testament. And Ross, this one might be tough for some people to wrap their minds around. Leviticus 20, 13, it says, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. So some modern ears hear this and say, that doesn't sound right. We should throw that out. Because the severity of the consequence is what gets our attention there. Chapter 20 is really just a follow-up on chapter 18. It lists all the same things that were said to be detestable there, but now it adds consequences or what's the punishment for those things in the nation of Israel and I don't know if this is helpful to the listener or not to say it's not just homosexuality that's singled out as a capital offense. You know, interestingly enough, uh, the same punishment is in, in verse 9 for anyone who dishonors father or mother. Or in verse 10, anyone who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the same penalty applies. But the, but the point is, you know, again, this these penalties don't apply to us anymore because we're not under the governance of the old covenant. We're under the governance of the new covenant, which Jesus introduced. And yet there is still a seriousness associated with this because while death is not the consequence of these, of these sins you know, in mortal life, death is still the consequence eternally, that there's an eternal death. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's the eternal consequence. But then it goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life. And so this is the hope, the encouragement that we have, that any sin that, any sin that we commit does have the consequence of eternal separation from God. But any sin that we commit also has the promise that um, we can receive eternal life. 
Okay, so those were the three passages from the Old Testament, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, but God has more to say about this in the New Testament, and the first passage we're going to look at in the New Testament comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, so now he's getting into the list, so pay attention to the list, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, so here's the big issue is that he says, don't you realize those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, what do I mean by that? Let me tell you, give you a list here, but he says, uh, the, the listed includes sexual sin, but it includes worship of idols. It includes adultery, male prostitution. Again, theft, greed, drunkenness, being abusive, cheating other people. Um, these are things, there's something on that list for every one of us. You know, so none of us is exempted from that list. So homosexuality makes the list for sure. So yeah, it is considered to be by God to be a sin that would prevent someone from, their, you know, salvation is required, let's put it that way, but you can't isolate it from the whole list. You know, so the, the point is some of us judge homosexuality when we're practicing greed. So we're no better, and we're just as much uh, far from God as, as they are. So, so we want to make sure we let God say what sin is. God's the one who gets to define what sin is. But I love the way he ends this. He, in verse 11, he says to these Christians in the, Corinth, in the church in Corinth, he says, some of you were once like that, like all this. Some of you were once doing those things. He says, but you were cleansed. You were sanctified. You were brought into the presence of God. So you were made right with God. But his point is that if you continue to practice any of those sins, that's inconsistent with what it means to be made right with God, to be a Christian. He says, you once were like that, but now you belong to God. And the point is that we let God tell us what's right and wrong. So maybe a good way to think about this for Christians is, would, would you justify your thievery if you were a thief? If someone was, was just literally a thief in your congregation, would they, would they come in and say, wait a second, you can't tell me that me robbing people, yeah, I just, I just, I just went down you know, and stole a bunch of TVs from the Best Buy. You can't tell me that's wrong. Obviously, we'd say, well, God's word says it's wrong. Or I just got drunk on Saturday night, and, but you can't tell me that that's wrong. So this is tricky because I think, most people have a sense, a lot of people have a sense for what's right and wrong. And I think the proper response to sin is repentance. Mm-hmm. It's to say, mm-hmm. look, I, I messed up here. I recognize it's wrong. Most people who get drunk who are believers, I think, recognize that God, God's not good with that. And so if, if we're a church that says, oh, it's no big deal, though, go ahead, get drunk all you want, we're, we're in violation of God's word. We're not helping our people to understand scripture and to live according to it. I think we're not doing anyone a service by dismissing sins. Well, most of these sins, we wouldn't just, adultery is a great example, right, Ross? If someone, we've had this in our church many times, 
a husband commits adultery or a wife commits adultery. And then as church leadership, we sometimes have to step in and help identify the mm-hmm. sin and help them to be restored. Hopefully they can be restored if they're repentant, right? If the if the husband that committed adultery is genuinely repentant, if the wife is willing to forgive, hopefully she is. And now we're walking with them toward uh, restoration in their marriage. But but what if the husband comes in and says, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, I can cheat on her all I yeah. want. Well, we got a problem now. And this is the thing, right? Is so many people, there are churches now, Christian churches, quote unquote Christian churches, who are looking the other way in in terms of homosexuality. We're saying, we're going to take that out of this list and we're still going to speak against adultery or thievery, but we're going to take this one out of the list and we're going to say, I don't think this, I don't think this applies anymore. And that's dangerous. It, It becomes a slippery slope because then what's next? Whatever the culture says next, someday something that is unconceivable for most people now will be will be elevated to say, "Oh, this is this is right," even though we know it's wrong now. Yeah, I had I had a woman come to our church a couple of months ago, and and she just was so offended that we said homosexuality is a sin, and she was she had reasons for you know where she had bought into the cultural perspective on this and she's you know done some calisthenics to mm-hmm. whatever to explain away these passages and i and i as i was trying to explain it to her i'm like how would you want us to treat somebody who came in and and, and was just openly cheating on their spouse and she said well that's a sin you should call that out and i said exactly <laughs> yeah. exact so see this is a sin also so maybe she hadn't ever wrestled with these passages this would have been a good topic, a good podcast for her to listen to. Because again, I think every Christian has to wrestle with this and allow God's word to speak for itself. Okay, yep. so here's the next one. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. So again, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. This one is a pastoral epistle. So the Corinthians was was written to a church in Corinth, a pretty dysfunctional church, by the way. 1 Timothy is written, is written to a pastor Paul is is training up Timothy. Timothy's a leader in the church, and he says this to him. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the gospel. Right. Now, verses 8 and 9 explain the point of the passage. It's talking about the role of God's moral law, the law that God has given. It's designed to define what's wrong. It's not designed, he says, to help us to uh, you know, be better people, but it's designed to call out what's wrong. And it specifically says in verse 9, for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful. And so verse 9 really says that everything listed in verse 10, that shows us the nature, the quality of the things that are listed in verse 10. They're rebellious against God. They're ungodly. They're sinful. And then verse 10 defines some specific examples of that, sexual immorality, homosexuality, slave trading, lying, breaking promises. And then it throws in at the end this catch-all, anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching related to the gospel. And so again, homosexuality is clearly on the, on the rebellion list, the sin list. And again, it's clearly not the only or even the primary sin on the list. And so, again, we see kind of here what we saw in the previous passage. In both these two passages, in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, 
Homosexuality is not listed as the ultimate or unpardonable sin, but neither is it dismissed. It's not seen as normative or lawful for people who are pursuing God. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he says anything that contradicts the gospel, the the teaching that comes from the gospel. And let's remember what the gospel is, the good news, the message of the early church, the message of the Bible, the whole message of the Bible, the message that we should be bringing to our neighbors, Mm -hmm. the message that we should be bringing to our kids as they wrestle with this. And the gospel is this, is that we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus, that that we're all sinners, we're all broken. Like you said, Ross, in, in the in verse 11 in the Corinthian passage where where Paul says, you all used to do this stuff. You used to live in this old way, but once you met Jesus, this is, the, this is such an important part of the gospel. Once you met Jesus and he saved you by grace, what happens then is you live a different life. You live a life that honors God now. Now from the inside out, he transforms you. He changes you, not so that we can cancel the law of God, but so that we can begin to fulfill the law of God, especially the spirit of the law of God. The gospel is not anything goes. Everything's okay. God doesn't care. The gospel is good news, but it starts with bad news. And the gospel is it's good news for the bad news. It's good news for people who will acknowledge that they're wrong with God, that they're sinful, that they've broken God's law in a million different ways, there's hope, there's encouragement. God says, you can still belong to me. You can still have a relationship with me because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and took all those sins upon himself. All right, there's one more passage that we need to address. And again, this isn't, this isn't all that Scripture has to say about this, but I think these are six that every Christian should definitely wrestle with. And this last one comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And here's what it says. That is why God abandoned people to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved." At Ross, this is a tough one, and I think people who are trying to whitewash these passages to justify homosexuality, this might be the toughest one for them. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, the context of what's going on here, going back into earlier part of chapter 1 and uh, verses 19 through 22 through 25, talks about how human beings generally have rejected God and have substituted their own wisdom over His. Verse 25 says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so the result of that is that God has, has given humanity over to it's what it wants. He says, okay, it's what you want. Go ahead, go for it, and then see what happens. And then that's where he talks about women um, indulging in sex with each other, men. Now, the other passages in the Old Testament only talked about men, generically. But now this also brings in women. And it, it calls them shameful things, and it says that, you know, that it calls it sin. And so the, the issue is that in, in the context of chapter 1, it shows us in, this in light of this much bigger picture. It, it's really against God's plan. It's really a denial. It's part of a denial of God's ultimate reality and saying that I'm smarter than God. Truth of God is, is abandoned. And so that's the heart of the issue in today's culture. The question is, if God's word says something is wrong and our culture says it's okay, you know, who am I, who am I going to uh, listen to? 
Am I going to just follow along what everybody else says, or am I going to go back to this this story that God has given that's rooted in his, his nature and our nature? The whole book of Romans just expresses completely what the nature of God's story actually is. If we scroll down a couple more verses here, verse 32, Ross, these words are, I think, important for us to include today. It says that they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And then it says, worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And I think this is a verse that Christians should really pay attention to. Because, Mm -hmm. Ross, I think there are a lot of Christians listening to this. Again, they probably came to this episode thinking, okay, I I love Jesus. I I go to church. I'm a Christian. I want to be biblical, uh, but I don't want to be a Jesus freak here. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I think there are a lot of Christians today, sadly, a lot of Christians today who are more influenced by our culture and what our culture is saying than God's word. And so up until now, a lot, for a lot of Christians, it's because they don't really know God's word. Look, we just looked at six passages that make it painfully clear. And some Christians, Ross, are going to still say after listening to this, I still don't want to be a Jesus freak. I'm not, I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm just going to let these people be, uh, you know, I just, I don't want to be labeled as a hater. Uh, You know, I, again, I want to read these words. It says, worse yet, they encourage others to live this way. You know, I think Christians, you need to, you need to think, am I, even by my silence, am I encouraging people to live this way? Again, we're talking about especially believers Am I not willing to call this out in my church, in my family, for believers, among believers, lovingly, we're not saying to be a jerk about it, but to lovingly take a stand for God's word? And I think if you're not, Ross, I think that would put you in a really precarious position. You really do need to take a stand at some point with God's word. Right. And I think what, what, we've, what we're living with in our culture is a historical legacy that is kind of throws some shade on Christians because in the past, Christian churches and Christian leaders have really vilified homosexuals. You know, we look at that list of sins in, in 1 Corinthians 6, and on there is, you know, is greed, for example. Well, we've never taken a, a march or gone on TV about greed, because greed is, is in, in-house. To, to take a big stand against greed on Sunday morning means I have to uh, confront a lot of people who are sitting there in the pews. Well, to take a stand on homosexuality in the past generation, those people aren't in here. So I can vilify, I can dump on them as much as I want to. It's like, it's like us and them. And yet more and more now, with the culture changing, more and more of those people who are, who are experiencing that or who are struggling with that, they are in our pews. So the past has created, because of those dynamics, have created maybe some overreach on the part of Christians in terms of of vilifying people and and acting like you know we we have had kind of a a negative perspective and we are we have been kind of haters in a way to the to those people and so now it's hard to take a stand without being labeled as the hater because of our behavior in the past maybe and so unfortunately just by saying well look I have a different perspective on this then the homosexual community in in their politics and in their um, promotion has said, you know, you are a, you are a hater. Even if you have a different perspective, you are a hater or you're, 
you're homophobic. You're afraid of gay people or whatever. And so, no, I'm not homophobic. You know, my brother's gay, and I'm not, I was not afraid of it. We had conversation. But it then labels me, and so that I have to work through the labeling to, to be willing to take a stand. So I don't, even, I don't even have to be negative or be a jerk about it or hate people about it anymore. Just by taking a stand, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive some of that flack from the people around us. But that's what it means to, you know, to be a Christian. Ultimately, there's going to be a bunch of things that I'm going to see really differently from the world. Um, have this completely different worldview that's informed by God's perspective on things, and it's not going to agree with the world around me at all in many, many ways. So I have to be willing to figure out what it means to be faithful to that. Yeah, a simple way maybe for some of our listeners to take a stand. Again, I would say even especially with someone in your life, maybe there are some parents who's, who've had some conversations about this with your kids, and your kids are wondering about their sexual orientation, maybe it's a good idea just to say, let's look at these passages together. Let's listen to this mm-hmm. podcast together. You know, go to PursueGod.org, use those questions t- to talk about it, parents with your kids, because I, I think it's important, especially for parents, I, I think I, we should say this, to lovingly represent God's Word to your kids. And But just keep in mind that your kids are getting the exact opposite message from school, from from culture, from influencers. And so I, you know, my heart goes out to parents who have kids who are struggling with this. We've got other resources, by the way, at Pursue God on this topic to help parents. But parents, I think it would be wrong to be to be so um, militant and unbending on this that your kids get the wrong idea about the heart of God. I think you need to say, "Here's what God's word says. This is this is very clear in God's word." And, and then to lovingly guide your kids, train them up in the way they should go, to lovingly guide them to accept God's word. But it's going to be more than one conversation, mom and, moms and dads. Don't think that you can just have this conversation once and then that's it. Your kid better get in line. This, this is going to take some real loving shepherding for parents who have kids who are in their teen years maybe struggling with some of these things. And, and then I think that would extend then to, Ross, like you said, if you have siblings who are struggling with this, or, or maybe someone in your small group, for small group leaders, someone who wrestles with this kind of topic, to say, look, we want to walk with you through this. We want to love you through this, like we would with any of these, these sins on the list. And, and we want to support you as you try to align with what God's word has to say. Because I think people who do, who really do want to honor God, but struggle with same-sex attraction, that's a real burden for people to bear in the church. And I think the answer to that is that we would, Genesis or Galatians 6, 2, that we bear each other's burdens. We help them get on the right track. So that doesn't mean we, we support them in their lifestyle. It's just we help them get on the right track, that we're gentle and kind as we help them get on the right track. That's the biblical answer, I think, to aligning with what God's Word has to say about it. Yeah, and there's so many, there's so many more things we would love to explore, but we're, or we're about out of time. I'd love to explore the question of whether or not same-sex attraction is equally sinful to same-sex behavior. That, this is a question that our, our listeners might have. Or what is the hope for a Christian who says, I have same-sex attraction, but I want to be obedient to God. 
What are the answers for that person? So some things we touched on. but And then what are some of the arguments that people will... Every one of these passages that we looked at, the people who support same-sex behavior, who, who want to still be Christians, will come up with an alternative interpretation of them. So what are, you know, how do we see through that or how do we call that? So there's a lot of things we didn't get a chance to talk about today, but hopefully this has been a beginning, at least with the, the most simple, clearest uh, verses that will, that will set you in the right direction. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.